Well, one of the things I think that's important uh, is that some of the folk who really like Puritans and identify with Puritans today, Reform folk, and maybe would like to see themselves in that light, um, need to realize that the Puritans were intensely, generally speaking, we're talking about the best of the Puritans, were very much men and women of their age. Thanks again for joining us on Roundtable, a podcast produced by Mid-America Reformed Seminary. My name is Jared Luchibor, and I'm the manager of marketing here at the seminary. It's always my pleasure to be able to produce these episodes for you, especially as we dive deep into a topic such as the Puritans, uh, which is a topic that we're returning to for episode 12. We're wanting to know more about them and see if we can better understand their value for the 21st century. The fine faculty of Mid-America are back, addressing the Puritans once again in speaking order are Professor of Church History, Dr. Alan Strange, Professor of Doctrinal Studies, Dr. J. Mark Beach, Old Testament Professor, Reverend Andrew Compton, and President of Mid-America and Professor of Doctrinal Studies, Dr. Cornelis Venema. Well, one of the things I think that's important uh, is that some of the folk who really like Puritans and identify with Puritans today, Reform folk, and maybe would like to see themselves in that light, um, need to realize that the Puritans were intensely, generally speaking, we're talking about the best of the Puritans, were very much men and women of their age. Mm. They were not, they, they, they knew as did Calvin and, and many of the folk of the time. They knew church fathers. They knew the best medieval writers. They read these, uh, the scholastics. But they weren't, in reading these, seeking to repristinate them or hearkening back. They were intensely folk of their own time. And they wanted the Bible in the vernacular of their time. And it's interesting, uh, when, when King James VI of Scotland became James I of England after the death of, of Elizabeth in 1603. He's coming down to um, London from Edinburgh in his carriage, and he's met by uh, a group of Puritans of various stripes. They have this document supposedly signed by a thousand preachers called the Millinery Petition, and they're basically asking for the reform of the church. They're hoping that the Scotsman who comes from a Presbyterian church will reform, particularly this Episcopal church in England and, and make it more properly a reformed church. And so he calls the Hampton Court Conference as a result of this in 1604, but it doesn't have the results that they had hoped for because he says to them um, at one point when he hears their desires for for no bishops. He says, no bishops, no king. And I think some of them muttered in their sleeves, that, well, it sounds like a good idea. Um, because there were Republicans among them, uh, at least in an early form. But he also said, ye shall conform, he said this to the Puritans, or I shall harry ye out of the land. And so right off the bat, though this Scotsman who was Presbyterian, it's pretty clear that he's not going their direction. But one of the things that comes out of the Hampton Court Conference is in 1611, he authorizes a group of men to put together a new Bible. And this new Bible, the authorized version, 
is very much from King James. It's very much from the Church of England. And in several respects, it's it's quite anti-Puritan hmm. over against the earlier Geneva Bible that they had in English and that they liked and were using. And it's richly ironic to me that many people who think of themselves as Puritans today especially embrace, maybe not from a King James only position, but they really hold forth that that. Uh, that version, and I, I, mean, I think it's a fine version. I think it's a, a literary masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just really interesting how people today who see themselves in a kind of Puritan light don't necessarily really understand the historical issues that well. And they particularly, I think some people seek that identity and almost want to flee into that identity because they see how the culture is and they're very, the culture is very secularized. It's not a godly culture, and I think there's a great deal of fear. I think there's a great deal of retreat in that, and it seems safe to try to retreat. I mean, we look at our Amish friends, and they pick some point in 1891 that they all seem to live in. Well, there are people who seem to pick a time in 1620 or something like that to live in. Sure. But the Puritans, of all people, weren't doing that. They were very much men and women of their time, and they were they were in every sense at that time progressive. I mean, they weren't the traditional lists. They were the ones calling for change. They were the ones calling for forward movement over against monarchy and all kinds of things that were so it's it's just very interesting how now today you have people who self-identify, they think of themselves as Puritan, they think of that as the most conservative thing you can think of, and that's certainly not the way it was thought of at the time. I mean, in the 1640s, these people led a revolution that ended up with them trying and executing the king, which was extraordinarily radical. This was not. <laughs> this was this was not a group of traditionalists. So, so, so what you know. <laughs> what's your accounting of why today we appropriate the Puritans? almost in the way of a repristination. I mean, in its worst form, not only do people want to use the King James Bible only or some version like that, but they even, in their prayers, their talk, their piety, they they even develop a vocabulary that seems from another era. Uh, What's your account of the way we've reappropriated or a segment of the Reformed world is attempting to reappropriate the Puritans in a very non-Puritan manner. Right. Well, I think it's interesting. I, I think it just, as I was indicating, I it seems to feel safe. And I, I, I get that. Well, yeah, there, there's even some of the things I've I've seen as, as people focusing on, on the family, for example. I mean, today we have this, this just horrible situation of broken families in in this culture and here was an era where they seemed to have a lot of family catechesis and and writings promoting family life and and you, you can see why there's there's something of a, of a desire to grab back into that time when there was a vibrant uh, a vibrant profession of faith in the home and, and a, a real spiritual aroma as it were but again even in that time that was all progressive for the time in other words it was progressive if you look at sort of the shape of the medieval family, 
it was it was something and even the way men and women related there was there was a there was a greater coming to terms I, I think because of the the spirituality that we've talked about in other respects the spirituality that that could be overly introspective could also be very vibrant and you get writers talking you get puritan writers talking about their wives and other women that they know and interact with in ways far more far more commended you know commending them far more positively than you read medieval people often talking about women or wives i mean so it i think it's i think it's interesting that that if we adopt that if, if we're saying we want to somehow repristinate a return to this Puritan age, if we if we couple that together with a very kind of traditionalistic kind of reactionary thinking, we're we're not even getting what they were doing in its better mode. Because they were very they were very forward looking. I mean, they tended to be. They were often some version. I mean, when you talk about their eschatology, whether it was a post millennialism as we would call it, I mean, post-millennialism and amillennialism, I think many here know, certainly they can read Dr. Venema on the subject, <laughs> were not clearly distinguished out at that time. The point is, though, is they tended to be optimistic. They tended to believe that the kingdom was just going to spread and that there was going to be a great increase and a great swell. I mean, there was just a, a, a sense of that. And so I, that, that played into their whole outlook. Uh, there was a there was an uptick in the way even superiors and inferiors. The medieval way was 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 very uh, very stratified. This this helped in in some of the not such rigid stratification and even in upward mobility. I mean, you had a, you have at this point economically you have nascent capitalism. You have a rising middle class, a merchant middle class. So I mean. The, the the notion that you're either a nobleman or a peasant is you know that's all being shattered because you had had the you had had the withering away in the Middle Ages of the middle class I mean you had had it earlier in the Roman Empire now you're having the return of the middle class and Puritanism is very much a part of that just like you have in France the Huguenots that's the merchant middle class and they're the reform folk and when they get chased out of France when the Edict of Nantes gets revoked. Uh, by Louis the Fourteenth, um, there's no small measure to which that leads to the French Revolution. That's part of what what contributes because it stratifies France again into kind of upper and lower class, no no middle class. Uh, you know, places don't do well without a middle class. The disappearance of a middle class, which is an interesting question about where we are, is that some people think our middle class is disappearing, but that's a it's a big question. And and the Puritans were very much a part of that. They, were, they gave stability to society. But it seems like there's a way we can we can read the Puritans on family life, let's say, and on catechesis in the home and that kind of thing, then with, without saying, well, I need to take my home here in 2019 where I have a TV and I have a stereo and we have a trampoline out back, and I need to pretend none of that exists. I need to go back and recreate right. this Puritan home where I talk this way with my kids and spend these many minutes doing these spiritual exercises. No, I can read them and, and very much benefit from, from their deep desire to see their children come to know Jesus Christ uh, and, and embrace that profession uh, without this pressure to go back in time, right. as it were. Well, I, I think there's always a danger 
when you have a particularly rich and productive, fruitful period in the history of the church, and certainly these writers overall with a spectrum of opinion do represent a period in the history of the Reformed churches, both on the continent and then the uh, British Isles, of the Dutch uh, use an expression, or at least they used one when the four, the three points in common grace, the fluorescent period hmm. in uh, Reformed theology. So you can read these writers with profit. Theologically, they're often fairly sophisticated and rich. But the big problem is always to freeze a moment hmm. or make a particular period of longer or shorter duration, your point of reference. It's like a golden age historiography. A golden age. And so these authors are placed on the highest shelf and everything else is sort of subordinated. And in this context, what about the writers of the 16th century, the earlier reformers? Uh, it's not clear to me that Calvin is a slouch as a theologian. Perhaps he should still receive some attention. Hmm. Uh, maybe he could be lumped in with them as uh, among those of a certain stripe. But I, I think there's always this temptation to try to find some moment when things were golden. And if we can either go back to that or we can bring that past into the present, then we'll have some kind of a reformation and renewal in the church. I think that's just flat wrong. It's a mistake. The reformers in the 16th century didn't do that. They built on the shoulders of the best of the patristics. They were always very anxious to uh, present their Catholic credentials, Catholic with a small c. They, th they saw themselves as a reforming movement within the history of the Christian church. And so if today people are reading the Puritans with the notion that we're going to find answers to all of our present questions. And what they said in their time is just what we need to say, even perhaps with the same accent and brogue in our time. That's, that's a huge error. Now, I don't know if we're going to come back to this later in our discussion, but I, I do want to also go back to our provocateur, <laughs> Dr. Beach's question about the Puritans. I don't know the English tradition as well as many, including Dr. Strange, I know a little more, but not as much as I'd like to, about the history as it unfolded in the Netherlands. And I think in the Netherlands you have a form of, even though the terminology is contested, Dutch Puritanism. Actually, the terminology used is the Nader Reformatie, which is hard to translate. It could be the Near Reformation or the Second Reformation. Perhaps that's a good term, because I think it does say something new is afoot that is distinct from what occurred in the first and principal reformation that occurred in the Netherlands. And this goes back to some comments earlier. These people were not interested in a, a new form of church government, uh, the adoption of any new confessions, uh, a repeat of what had occurred in the 16th century. They were fixed very much on this worry about formalism, about a nominal Christian, the Reformation's emphasis upon free acceptance, justification, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, uh, was sort of assumed, but they turned their focus very much to whether the term is experimental or often today the language is used experiential, 
a focus on sanctification and the narrative of grace, mm -hmm. the kind of experience of the work of God's grace that isn't even necessarily mediated through means of grace in the traditional sense, preaching of the word, ministry of the word, and sacraments, but the cultivation of a certain kind of piety. Sometimes it's called Dutch pietism, which is its own unique variety. Hmm. Now, and even there you have a wide spectrum. But there does emerge in the Dutch tradition, I think, and it created all kinds of problems in the 19th century in terms of the separation that occurred in 1834, and issues that were debated in the Dutch church throughout that entire century and right into and through the 20th and live with us still today, where you had a kind of experientialism that really undermined and pulled the rug out from underneath the robust assurance that the ministry of a gospel of free grace and of justification on account of the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone, that you really did get this language of assurance is a rare jewel. It's an exception. Most Christians ought not to even to be encouraged to have a robust cultivating full assurance. Better to keep them on the anxious bench lest they become lackadaisical and take their salvation for granted. I ministered in a Christian Reformed church as a young pastor, people who had been nurtured in this tradition of the nearer Reformation, who had not professed faith in Jesus Christ until they were perhaps, if they ever did, in their uh, mature years, 50s and 60s. Hmm. Boy. And they had been so drilled in the notion that for fear of being hypocritical, of representing as true faith a mere semblance of a Christian profession? Is it a genuine conversion? What are its fruits, manifestations? That uh, you literally have churches where people would not come to the communion table for fear of coming presumptuously. Now, that's a very different kind of piety yeah. and development in a new context, subsequent to the Reformation, how compatible it is with the Reformation, or how far removed it is from the Reformation, is a pretty significant question. But in the Dutch churches, it presented itself very much in the form of, even though the children of believing parents receive the sacrament, the sign and seal of the gospel promise, you really are encouraged to regard them as like all others, even those unbaptized as not yet having through a demonstrable and compelling conversion narrative demonstrated that the grace promised was actually theirs. That, that's they, curious too because sacraments within that strand mm -hmm. of uh, Dutch piety, however you want to finally brand it, and it gets difficult because there's all these this texture that runs in different directions. But the sacraments are gutted the sacraments tend to be emptied out, perfunctory. And you can't really look to them as fortifiers of faith because that's not where the action is. In other words, our eyes have been taken off of God's promises in Christ and so focused upon ourselves, putting faith in our faith, 
you know, it's it's like it's always deadly. Either we despair of ourselves or we get conceited and full of pride. And there seems to be missed that there's a gospel in between both of those. This low sacramentology is also characterized a lot of Scottish and American Presbyterianism. I mean, there, there are some exceptions, but it has characterized that too. And dear listening friends, we would invite you to send to us your narratives of grace, <laughs> and we will judge whether you really are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ or not. No, but we're, we're laughing a little bit, and you could say things like, well, it sure saves on, you know, communion wine and bread if you have just a couple people coming, but it's it's surely a lamentable thing. It's surely lamentable because we're we're allowing ourselves. Paul said we preach not ourselves but Christ. But somehow, it, if we're going down that path where the narrative of grace assumes the kind of primacy that it has. We're preaching ourselves in some measure and not Christ. You know, a lot of people have, the Puritans have been criticized in this way of being so prolix. I mean, they, they, they take many, many, many words to say something that could be uh, said in much uh, fewer words. But well, it, I would it, never it can, hold that against them. Yeah. <laughs> well, but look how this can affect even even this very thing we're talking about. You can you can read the uh, some of these uh, recountings of, of the Christian life and the struggle with sin and almost become overwhelmed with how much detail is described. And there's so much I need to be thinking about that that, that can drive you inward and drive you crazy. Well, I, I don't know that I've that I'm actually doing these nine subpoints in my uh, in my desire to uh, to to crucify the flesh on on this that and the other point. It can almost lead into uh, into this this very doubt. If I may throw in one little uh, additional comment, it relates. I tie the two things together: the um, desire to go back to a moment, a particular period, and that becomes the norm for subsequent church history, and what happened, at least in the Dutch tradition, to some degree, not I don't mean to paint with too broad a brush, but a certain kind of experientialism tended to undermine the opportunity to really embrace a promise in the Word and in communicated as well in the sacrament until you could demonstrate to yourself that your narrative was compelling. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, some of the best Dutch theologians come after this. There are older writers in this period. It's even a term used in the Dutch, the old writers of that period. But, and I have in mind people like Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bavink. Hmm. Each in their own way and sometimes somewhat controversially and even perhaps problematically address some of these questions. But they move the discussion forward. They were writing late 19th, early 20th century. And if I were to apply this sort of, there's a moment that becomes the point of reference. In terms of the tradition of theological writing in the Netherlands, it would be rather impoverishing because some of the best theological literature was produced in this this was a fluorescent period in the Dutch <laughs> theological <laughs> tradition, the late 19th and through the mid-20th century, not only in dogmatic, systematic theology, but also in biblical theology. Think Herman Ritterboss and people like that, Gerhard Voss. Mm -hmm. um, these are all more recent writers. 
and they're addressing questions in their own context, but also against the background of some of this history, and they're making some correctives. There was even a homiletical corrective in the Netherlands. This tradition gave birth to the kind of preaching that is sometimes referred to as moralistic or exemplarish. You take all the figures in the biblical story of redemption, you turn them into people we need to mimic or copy. Well, then you've you've made this the biblical narrative principally about us and not about the triune God and his initiatives and actions in history to redeem his people, which calls you firstly to faith, gratitude flowing out of faith, but it's not firstly about get your life together. I, you know, if you take David in the Old Testament as an example, uh, you've got a sort of a mixed example there as far as uh, a paragon of virtue and it diminishes the whole, um, so that what I'm saying is there's been a lot of very good theological literature in the particular tradition with which I'm most familiar that comes after and in some ways represents significant progress beyond and improvement upon what was going on in the 18th, 19th, or early 19th century in the Netherlands. It just shows, illustrates why stopping at some point in history and leaving things there and looking at everything thereafter as merely a set of footnotes is a, is a big mistake. Seems like we are really here at Mid-America working in the spirit of the Puritans in that we are moving forward. We are taking many of these insights, much of this rigor uh, of, of studying the scripture, of, of seeking to know the, the system of, of theology contained therein, and we are moving forward. We're writing new books. And yeah, that, I, that's, that is our way I of think effectively the best thing, reading the, using I, yeah, the Puritans I think the today. best thing that we can get from them and their legacy is to be men and women of our own time hmm. who seek, I think what they sought at their best was to edify the church and to glorify Jesus Christ. I think that was really them at their best. And I, I believe that's what we're seeking to do here at Mid-America Reform Seminary. If I may add also, um, experiential Christianity or authentic faith, the joining of head and heart, is not merely a legacy of the Puritans. Mm. That's the legacy of the whole authentic Christian tradition. And any <laughs> Christian writer we can read and, and be edified from. Yeah. And an introspection of a certain type is not merely what qualifies as experiential Christianity. Um, putting your faith in Christ and finding assurance in him is also quite experiential and a wonderful experience, as I may add. Hmm. Nor is an experiential Christianity one that keeps coming back to yourself and talking about yourself. Uh, we do better to keep getting our eyes, having looked at ourselves, uh, being directed back to God and his grace in Christ Jesus, yeah. reading the scriptures afresh with the help of Puritans and many other writers, uh, both ancient and present, contemporary, that we can truly then serve God in our time and try to be faithful servants today as the Puritans sought to be in their time.
that wraps up our discussion on the Puritans. You know, as we come off a topic like this, it reminds me of how good it is to hear from you, our listeners. What are your thoughts on this particular topic? What are your thoughts on topics you'd like to hear more of? If you've got any ideas, please feel free to reach out to me at jluchibor at midamerica.edu. That's J-L-U-T-T-J-E-B-O-E-R at midamerica, all lowercase, no hyphen, dot edu. Uh, you can message the Mid-America Reformed Seminary Facebook page, or better yet, stop by in person and we can chat over some coffee. Unfortunately, however, it will not be Tim Hortons. Well, that does it for today. Keep your ears open. We've got natural law coming at you in a couple of weeks. Until then, stay tuned to all things Mid-America Reformed Seminary. Thanks for joining us.